The ordination of new deacons, as we've witnessed today, is certainly worthy of celebration. Now, to be sure, it is a solemn occasion as well, because any leadership position in the church is heavily weighted with responsibility. You cannot make light of this at all. Uh, it's not to be taken lightly by the congregation or by the men entering into office. But an ordination service is also a joyful occasion. It is a joyous occasion because God uses officers to build up his church, to strengthen his church, to equip his church. Faithful officers are a blessing to the body. They are a gift given to the church. Qualified officers are essential to a healthy church, to a healthy, fully functioning church. There are a variety of offices within the church. Some of the offices we read about in the New Testament were only temporary offices, and uh, they have vanished from the life of the church, you could say. Uh, the perpetual permanent offices include pastors, elders, and deacons. Those are certainly the most common perpetual offices in the church. Pastors, what are pastors for? Pastors preach and teach the word. They administer the sacraments. They shepherd the flock. Uh, ruling elders or governors shepherd the flock along with the pastors. They work with the pastors in this. And that's why we say that pastors and ruling elders together comprise what we call the session. That is the ruling body in the life of any local church. The buck always stops with the session. The pastors and elders, they're the ones who are responsible for ruling the church, disciplining the congregation. Uh, everything about the congregation's life is their responsibility. Deacons then are assistants to the pastors and elders. And so their tasks can vary. Indeed, they can vary widely. But commonly, deacons are responsible for things like caring for the church's property. Uh, they can be responsible for things like uh, helping with music and with liturgy. They can oversee the church's funds. They can care for the poor outside of the church and especially the poor inside the church. And so again, generally, they will assist the session in whatever ways are needed. Deacons have this wide variety of functions, but probably historically they are best known for their function in benevolence or what we might call mercy ministry or caring for the poor. Deacons have often been the hands and feet of Christ on the front lines. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 6, we didn't read it this morning, but if you look at Acts chapter 6, there is some debate over just what office is in view. But I think it makes a lot of sense to view the men chosen for office in Acts chapter 6 as the first New Covenant deacons. Uh, these men, these seven men in Acts chapter 6, were uh, chosen for office so that the apostles could devote themselves more fully to the work of teaching and prayer. In Acts chapter 6, this is the situation. You have some widows who are being neglected in the daily distribution of goods, and the apostles needed help in sorting this issue out, and so seven men were chosen to serve tables, to care for these needy widows. And I think it makes a lot of sense to see those men as the first new covenant deacons. That's one thing that deacons do, is they care for the poor. Uh, that's something that I think is, has been uh, lost in many ways in the church. Sometimes conservative Christians think that showing social concern, especially for the poor, is a mark of liberalism. Not so. The reality is liberal churches have traditionally done virtually nothing to help the poor. 
Instead, what liberal churches tend to do is call on the state to solve our social ills. And to be quite honest with you, usually the policies they end up recommending do more damage than good. They hurt the poor more than they help. So this myth of liberal compassion for the poor, I think, needs to be shattered. What I would say needs to happen as an alternative is the church needs to work at developing her own mercy ministries, her own alternative to the, the statist welfare system. Mercy ministry is so important to the life of the church that the church would have a deed ministry to go along with her word ministry. Mercy ministry makes the church visible to the world and shows the world that the church's faith is not merely a private individualistic kind of thing, but a public communal virtue that even can serve the common good. You look across church history and you can find Many times when even pagans recognized that Christians were caring for the poor and serving the common good in this way. Further, these acts of Christian compassion show us that Christianity is not just an ideology. They show the world that the Christian faith is not just an ideology, but rather a holistic way of life. It is true, the state may have some legitimate role to play in helping the poor. Perhaps you could point to Daniel chapter 4 or Psalm 72. Some passages seem to suggest that. But it's also clear from scripture that the primary responsibility for caring for the poor falls upon the family and upon the church, and within the church, especially upon the diaconate. And it's really interesting to me, traditionally Presbyterians have recognized this. Just to give you an example of this, the 1892, so 1892, go back a ways, 1892 General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church repented of her abdication in this area. And they made this declaration. They said, all too often we have taught the poor that the state and not the church is their caregiver, but it is high time that care for the poor be rescued from this neglect and restored to its proper dignity as the most ancient and one of the most significant of ecclesiastical functions. That is to say, it's a churchly function. And then they go on to say in this 1892 declaration, they go on to say the social worker can never be a substitute for the deacon. The church must prove herself friend of the needy. She can and should answer and conquer the communist by the deacon. These Presbyterians in 1892 saw the answer to communism and socialism as the diaconate. And I think that's something we probably need to recover in our own day because again, to be very frank with you, many government programs aimed at helping the poor actually subsidize immorality. They create a downward spiral that undermines and even destroys the family and the community. It's up to the church to rectify this situation. It's up to the church through her holistic ministry of word, sacrament, and mercy to deal with what you could, what you could say are the moral and spiritual roots of poverty. That's uh, a big part of what the diaconate is for, to lead the church in caring for the poor and needy. One more quick anecdote from history that you might find interesting. When the communists took over Russia in 1917, they did not make it illegal to be a Christian. But they did make it illegal for the church as the church to care for the poor. That is to say, when the communists took over Russia, they didn't target pastors, they targeted deacons. And they basically outlawed the church's diaconate. 
And so no longer would the church be free to fulfill her historic role of feeding the hungry and caring for the sick and educating and housing the orphan. Instead, the state would do those things. And the state would do those things in an attempt to gain the loyalty of the people. Because whoever cares for the poor always has the heartstrings of the people. Now, the sad thing, I think, is that in the United States, no such law or takeover was needed. In most cases, the church simply handed these functions over to the state. One of the things I think the church, and this is certainly much bigger than just our congregation, but one of the things that the church needs to recover today is this diaconal mercy ministry, this care for the poor, caring for those in need. So important. Because, again, when the state does it so often, it's done wrongly. It's done in a way that hurts more than helps. Now, it'd be interesting to, to go further down this pathway of looking into what the Bible says about these things, the wisdom that the Bible gives us, the wisdom we find in the scripture about caring for the poor, but that's not going to be my focus this morning. I'm not even going to focus on the more generalized job description that you might say deacons have. Instead, what I want to do this morning is step back, I want to step much further back and take a look at the big picture, the biggest picture of, of them all. The big picture of God's plan for the church, which if you understand what the church is, you understand God's plan for the church is really his plan for history and for humanity. And that's why I had us read from Ephesians chapter 4, because in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is outlining God's game plan for the church, his goal for the church. Because again, his goal for the church is his goal for history and his goal for humanity. These things are realized in the church. And so, yes, my sermon today can be understood as a charge to our new deacons, but really it's a charge to the whole congregation. It's a charge to all of us. It's not just about understanding where deacons fit into the church or where mercy ministry fits into the life of the church, as important as those things are. This sermon today is about where the church fits into the cosmos, the place of the church in the cosmic purposes of God. See, that's what we really need to see. What God is doing in and through and for his church in history. Paul shows us in this passage how God grows the church. And therefore he shows us in this passage how God grows you and me as individual Christians. But the reality is we can't grow as individual Christians unless we're part of a growing church. Those things go together. And we're also going to see here that officers in the church are integral to this process of growth. We want to see that as well. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, and I really need to set the stage for you here to understand what's going on here since we're picking up in the middle of a letter. Paul says, therefore, you know, preachers like to say whenever you see a therefore, you need to know what it's there for. Well, certainly that's the case here. This is really the turning point in the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians breaks up into roughly two equal halves. You have the first part, chapters 1 through 3, which describe the wonders of grace, and then you have the second part, chapters 4 through 6, which describe the walk of grace. So you've got the wonders of grace and the walk of grace. That's one way to think about it. In the first part of this book, Paul describes the new reality, the alternate reality, the new reality created by Jesus' death resurrection, ascension, and reign. He shows us how reality has been restructured. Reality has been reconfigured in Christ because Christ now reigns over all. The world has changed. The, the, the whole cosmos has been changed. 
through Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And then the second part of the letter describes the culture, the specifically Christian culture, the specifically Christian way of life that flows out of that new reality. If Christ reigns in heaven, what does that look like on earth? Well, Paul describes for us this new Christian culture, this new civilization, this new humanity being brought into being. And Paul shows us that begins in the church. I find it really interesting, in fact, the first three chapters end with an amen. As if to say the first three chapters have been one long sustained prayer. The second three chapters begin with a therefore. This is Paul's way of signaling to us everything he has said thus far grounds and undergirds what he is about to say next, beginning in chapter 4. Everything he says from chapter 4, verse 1 on, is grounded and undergirded by what has come in the first three chapters. Again, Paul has described the reconfiguration of the cosmos that has taken place in Christ's work. Now he's going to call on the church to enter into that new reality, to live in that new reality, to live in light of that new reality. That's really what Ephesians 4 through 6 are about. Others will live like the world has not changed. They'll go on living in the old way. Paul makes that clear. But as Christians, we cannot do that. We know better. We know the world is a different place. The death and resurrection of Jesus has changed the universe, and so it must change you and me as well. And that's what Paul's going to sketch out for us, this new way of life, what it means to be this new humanity that God has called into existence through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what life should look like now that Christ has been raised and ascended. So Paul says, therefore, therefore I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. See, the call leads to a walk. The call leads to a culture. That's really what Paul is saying here. The new reality brought into existence in Christ must lead to a new way of living. And so Paul is saying now, step into that new reality. Step into that new reality and walk in it. The worthiness Paul talks about here when he says walk worthy of the calling. This worthiness has nothing to do with earning or meriting God's favor. That's obvious because Paul is so stressed God's grace in this letter all the way up to, to, to this point. To walk worthy here means to walk in a fitting way. To walk in a way that is congruent with this new reality. To walk, to, to live in such a way that it fits with this new reality brought into existence by the reign of Christ over all things. So basically when Paul says walk worthy, what he's really saying is get with the program. Catch up with what God has already done. Get your life in line with what God has done in the cosmos. Live in sync with this reality of Christ's reign over all things. That's what it means to walk worthy. Now I'm going to sidestep here Paul's reference to his imprisonment in verse 1. He says he's writing as a prisoner for the Lord. I just want you to note this. This new reality that God has brought into existence through the death resurrection and reign of Christ does not mean that his people will escape suffering. It does not mean his people will escape persecution. Paul's reference to his own imprisonment in this context is a reminder of that. What does it mean to walk worthy? 
Well, Paul's going to unpack it for us. And this is what's interesting. The very first thing Paul describes in terms of what it means to walk worthy, to walk in line with this new reality, the first thing Paul describes is the unity that should exist among God's people. There should be unity among God's people because of this new reality God has brought into existence. Now, it's clear from verse 3, we don't create this unity. Rather, we keep this unity. We don't create it, we keep it. We didn't make this unity, we maintain it. But Paul makes it clear, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to keep this unity we've been given, to cultivate this unity we've been given. We're to keep this unity, which Paul describes as the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell among a people, the Spirit binds those people to one another and creates a bond of peace between them. And so if you ask, well, how do we maintain this unity we've been given? How do we keep this peace? Well, we do it by exhibiting the virtues that Paul lists in verse 2, where he mentions lowliness or humility, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Paul's command to maintain the unity, that this bond of peace means that there will be threats to that bond. When Paul gives us this command, Paul is presupposing the fact that sometimes there will be friction between Christians. Have you ever seen that? Christians struggle to get along? Yeah, of course, we've all seen it. We've all experienced it. Sometimes there are going to be disagreements among Christians. Doctrinal disagreements. Maybe they're serious, maybe they're not. Sometimes other kinds of disagreements. There are going to be relational struggles in the church. And what Paul is saying here is that we can only move through those struggles and maintain peace if we bear with one another in long-suffering love. There must be humility. There must be charity in order for the church to maintain this bond of peace, this connection we have with one another, to maintain this community, this unity. We must live lives of charity and humility. It's the only way we can maintain this community we've been given. Paul then goes on to unpack further this unity we've been given, what it means to have this unity given to us. And Paul gives us a series of ones. There are seven ones in all. Here they are. I'll just walk through them really quickly for you. I think they're pretty self-explanatory. He says there's one body. That one body, of course, is the church. There's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. There's one body. He says there's one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ and who unites us to one another. The spirit creates the bond of peace. You might even say the spirit is the bond of peace between us. There's one spirit. He says there's one hope of our calling. We've been called into this new reality, this one hope we have, this is the shared salvation we have in Christ, this shared future inheritance that already now is in some way our possession. There's one hope. He says there's one Lord. That's obviously Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all, who reigns as sovereign over the whole universe. There's one Lord. He says there's one faith. That is to say there's one word of God. This is the doctrinal content of God's word. There's one faith that we confess, one faith we believe and seek to put into practice. There is one baptism. This is the sacrament of initiation. It is through baptism that we are brought into the church. And so you can think of baptism as a kind of solvent that dissolves all those other differences between us so we can become 
one. This one baptism might ultimately be a reference to Christ's baptism. That's the one baptism in an ultimate sense. And when we are baptized, it means we come to share in that once and for all baptism that Christ himself received. We become sharers in Christ's own priesthood, his own priestly ministry. One baptism, one doorway into the church that we've all passed through. One God and Father of all. Lastly, he points us to the Father. See, we're all brothers and sisters belonging to the same family. We have the same Father. Of course we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same Father. We're members of the same family. Now, in Paul's original context, this oneness had to do primarily with uniting Jew and Gentile believers in the church. And that was the big difficulty. In many of Paul's letters, it's almost like Paul is writing as a marriage counselor to help an estranged couple learn to get along. He writes so many of his letters to help Jews and Gentiles in the church learn how to get along with one another. That was the primary threat to the church's unity. But what Paul says here applies to anything that threatens the church's oneness. And so the first thing we can say here is this, to walk worthy is to walk together. If we're going to walk in this new reality that Christ has created through his death, resurrection, and reign, we must walk united. We must walk together. We are God's new humanity. We are his new people. We must walk in unity as much as possible with other Christians. We must live at peace with one another as much as possible. Now understand, it's not peace at the expense of purity. Never. It's always peace and purity together. In fact, where there is no purity, there can be no peace. It's not unity rather than truth or unity at the expense of truth. No, it is unity rooted in the truth and grounded in the truth. There are certainly false forms of unity we must avoid. But Paul's saying here, we must live as one because we are one. That's true in a local congregation. That's true of the people of God Globally considered, we must live as one because we are one. Now, quite obviously, the church has not always done a very good job of this. We're not doing a very good job of it in our day. But we need to understand, this is what it means to walk worthy of the calling we have received. And really, to walk in this unity makes perfect sense, given everything else Paul has already said in this letter. Everything Paul said so far sets us up for this. Think about this. The real theme of Ephesians is found in the opening verses. Really chapter 1, the first 13 verses. But especially, I think, verse 10 is the theme of this letter. Because there, Paul tells us God's purpose. God's purpose is that in the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things in heaven and on earth. What is Paul saying? He's saying God is gathering up everything. He's reordering the whole universe under the headship of Christ, under the, the leadership of Christ, under the reign of Christ. He's putting everything in its place. He's uniting everything under Christ. So this ordered unity of the church under Christ is a sign that all things are being ordered under Christ. The unity of the church under Christ is a sign that all things are being united under Christ. When we're gathered together as the people of God, that's a sign that all things are being gathered together under God, under the one God has appointed under Christ. God is uniting all things in Christ, his son. Everything is being summed up in him. God is uniting the cosmos in Christ. And if that's the case, then a united church is really the first sign of that. It's the first fruits of that. It's the sign that God is indeed 
uniting all things in his son. That's the new reality the unity of the church is to display. And so a fractured church, a fragmented church, is really out of order. A fragmented church is a disordered church. It's acting as if the world isn't really being reordered and reunited under Christ. A divided church contradicts the new reality. It's not worthy of the new reality that Christ has brought into existence. Well, in verse 7, Paul says, grace has been given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace has been given to each of us in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift. And then Paul quotes Psalm 68. This is a little bit cryptic. But he quotes Psalm 68 and shows that Psalm 68 has actually been fulfilled in Christ. When he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. In its original context, Psalm 68, those words are talking about Yahweh. Now they're applied to Jesus. And we see that the ascended Christ is a gift giver. To celebrate his victory, what does he do? He gives gifts to the church. This is what ancient kings would do. They win a great victory. They share the spoils of that victory with their people. Paul's saying that's what Christ has done. Paul goes on to explain Christ descended to the lower parts of the earth. What's that a reference to? Well, it could be a reference to his incarnation and then to his death on the cross, or it could even be a reference to the descent of his soul into Hades after his death and prior to his resurrection. There was a descent, so now there can be an ascent. Christ descended so that he might ascend. He went to the depths so he could be exalted to the heights. He went to the very depths of the earth so he could be exalted far above all the heavens, filling all things with his presence. Paul says this is the pattern of Christ's ministry, a descent, then an ascent. But go back to Psalm 68. What is Paul doing with Psalm 68? Because I really think that Paul's use of Psalm 68 is one of the keys to this passage. In Psalm 68, what's going on? We obviously can't read it all this morning. But Psalm 68 recounts God coming to rescue his people. God leading his people from captivity to freedom. God making his people who are in captivity to a false lord, now his own captives, if you will. They become his captives, his people, his servants now. So he leads captivity captive. But in leading captivity captive, he's really leading the, the captives to freedom. He's delivering them from their enemies. And then Psalm 68 goes on to, to talk about how Yahweh shares the spoil of war with his people as gifts. Well, here Paul is saying that Christ has won the great victory. He's done all these things. He has delivered us. He's given gifts to all his people. And so Paul is saying every member of the church is gifted by the ascended Christ. Christ ascended to the heavens and poured out gifts upon his people. We could obviously look at other places in scripture that describe these gifts as spiritual gifts. Here they're the gifts of Christ, elsewhere they're the gifts of the Spirit, but they're the same gifts. They're gifts given for service. Every member of the body, every member of Christ's body is gifted in some way for service. Paul makes this same point in 1 Corinthians 12, where again he's dis discussing spiritual gifts. It's the same thing here. Every member of the church is gifted by Christ and by the Spirit. And get this, because you are gifted, you are a gift. 
Understand that every member of the church is gifted in order to be a gift. God has given you a gift so that you can become a gift to the whole body. Every member of the church is gifted to be a gift to the church. Each member of the church is a gift to the whole church. And that's important because of what Paul's going to say next. Because see what Paul does here, after affirming that Christ has given a gift to each of us, that we've been given a gift by Christ, he goes on to describe how there are some very specialized gifts who are given as gifts to the body. See, there are gifts given to the gifts for the sake of the gifts. Now, that's a lot of gifting going around, but, but understand, bear with me here for just a minute. If you were to ask the question, how does Jesus keep his church united? And indeed, how does Jesus keep his church growing and maturing? The answer is right here in what Paul does next. It is through these gifted men he gives to his church, specifically officers. They are described there in verses 11 and 12. Paul says he, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now it's an interesting list here. There are no more apostles and prophets in the church today. Uh, we still build upon their work, but there are no more apostles and prophets in the church today. In fact, it's interesting, back in chapter 2, Paul said, A prophet's apostle and apostles lay the foundation of the church. They lay the foundation of the church for future generations. They had a once and for all role to play in the history of the church. They played it, and now there are no more apostles and prophets. This is really clear in the case of apostles, because apostles had to be eyewitnesses to the risen Christ personally commissioned by the risen Christ. Obviously, Christ is not visibly appearing to people to commission them today to become apostles. Prophets, we can say something similar. Prophets were given special revelation directly from God. And so a prophet could speak or a prophet could write and then he could say, thus saith the Lord. I hope my sermons are faithful to the teaching of scripture, but I would not put a thus saith the Lord behind everything I say because I'm not a prophet. I'm not inspired in that kind of way. See, prophets gave us scripture or they compensated for when the church did not have the completed scripture. Think about this. If you're in a first century church context and you've only got the Old Testament and maybe a, a, you know, a, a, a gospel or two and maybe a few letters of Paul, but not all 27 books of the New Testament. You don't have that yet. So what makes up for that lack? Well, it's a prophet in your community, a prophet in your midst who can speak the very word of God to you. But once the completed canon of Scripture is ours, the need for, a pro for prophets in that way is no more. Perhaps we could talk about apostleship or prophethood in a, in a generalized kind of way in the church today. But those offices as such have ended. We have the completed, perfected canon of Scripture. We don't need any new revelation. We're not out there looking for 4th John or 3rd Thessalonians. And it's actually really bad things happen when the church starts to do that. So if you look at Paul's list, that leaves us with evangelists, pastors, and teachers for today. Well, who are these people? Well, evangelists are those men who are called to be missionaries and church planters. An evangelist is literally a gospel bringer one who 
brings good news, a good news bringer, so someone who takes the gospel to a new place as a missionary or a church planter, that seems to be what an evangelist is. Pastors and teachers then are those who, imply, who apply the inscripturated words of apostles and prophets to a particular congregation. Uh, uh, the pastor, teacher here, takes a particular congregation under his care, and he applies the words of the apostles and the words of the prophets to those people, to a particular congregation. Now you might ask, well, what about uh, ruling elders, and what about deacons? Ruling elders and deacons are not mentioned here, but I think they are implied. There's no reason to think Paul is seeking to be exhaustive with these offices he lists. In fact, Paul is usually not exhaustive when he gives a list like this. And it's interesting to compare this list to other lists, like what you have in Romans or in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just to give you an example, Paul includes in his list of spiritual gifts uh, governors or administrators, which seems to be ruling elders. And he also talks about helps or servants. That would seem to correspond quite well with the deacons. So just as we would say Christ gave some to be evangelists and pastors and teachers, we can say Christ gave some to be ruling elders, to, to govern the church, and Christ gave some to be deacons, to help and assist the other officers in practical kinds of ways, to carry on a deed ministry alongside of the word ministry of some of the other officers in the church. Now put all of this together. Paul has shown us every member of the church has a gift, and so every member of the church is a gift to the whole body. Every member is gifted and therefore is a gift. But now he has singled out church officers. Church officers are special gifts to serve the whole body in more authoritative and exemplary ways, and so they are set apart by ordination to office, set apart from the body, within the body, for this purpose. Perhaps the best analogy for this is to think about the Old Covenant Levites. The, the, the Levites were Israelites, but they were a special group of Israelites given to the Israelites for the sake of the whole nation of Israel. The Old Covenant Levites, I think, probably are in the background here. They would seem to be uh, in the background of, of Paul's language here. In the book of Numbers, it's really interesting. God takes the tribe of Levi... So he sets them apart as his own in a special way. And then he gives the Levites to Israel to serve them in a special way as priests. He gives the Levites to the nation of Israel as gifts. The Levites are God's gift to the nation of Israel. They are priests ministering to a nation of priests. They are special priests serving the royal priests. They're gifts given to the gifts. It's the same kind of pattern. God's doing it in the new covenant as well. Officers are gifted men given as gifts to the whole body to support every member of the body in exercising their gifts. So again, put it this way, officers are gifts given to the body to maximize the use of the body's gifts. Officer gifts support member gifts. That's the whole point. It's not that officers are the only gifts or the only gifted members of the body. Far from it. Again, Paul starts off saying Christ has given each one of us a gift according to the measure of his grace. Rather, the point of having officers is they are to help support the use of the gifts of the body as a whole, the gifts that have been given to every other member of the body. 
And so the officers are not supposed to be the only ones doing the work. The officers are not supposed to be the only one doing the ministry. The officers are not supposed to be the ones doing everything. It's not as if you're a passive congregation watching the officers and the religious professionals do everything for you. No, far from it. That is not Paul's picture of the church. Rather, the point of the officers is to enable every other member to do the work they have been gifted to do. Again, officers are supporting gifts, helping the other members of the body use their gifts well, which is for the good of the body as a whole. And so again, let's ask the big question. How does Jesus help his body maintain unity? How does he help his church to grow and mature? It's through these gifts, the officers, they are God's gifts to you. That's how I want you to think about the officers of this church. They are God's gifts to you. Christ has given them to you to help you grow, to help you exercise your own gifts. Christ has given you, the congregation, the gifts of officers, so you can use your gifts in the body for the good of the whole. And in this way, the church becomes what the church is supposed to be. And the whole body is built up. See, that's the point of having officers in the church. Not so they can lord it over the people and boss them around. It's so they can use their gifts so the whole body can be equipped. So the whole body can use their gifts for the good of all. Officer gifts help member gifts use their gifts. I know that's a lot of gifting going around. But that's God's design for the church. Officers are gifts given to enable the use of other gifts in the body. That's how it works. And, and note, this is just what Paul goes on to say. These officer gifts are given, Paul says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Note in that vow that these deacons, these new deacons took this morning. Yes, they made a vow to preserve the unity and peace of the church. They also made a vow to work for your edification. That's just what Paul says here. That the, 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 the gifts that God has given, the officer gifts God has given are given to equip you and they're given to edify you. That is to build you up and strengthen you. And this then brings us closer to the ultimate goal. God's goal for the church is described in verses 13 through 16. And as is so typical of Paul, he piles up clauses on top of each other and then leaves it to us to, to unravel it all, to figure out what all these clauses mean. But I can boil it down for you. I can simplify it for you real easily. It all comes down to this one word, maturity. If you had to summarize in one word what Paul is saying he wants for the church, what God's plan is for the church, what God's program is, it's this. It's that one word, maturity. That is God's goal for his people, that we would mature into full Christ-likeness, individually, yes, and corporately as well. Now, obviously, this process of the church as the body of Christ, as a corporate person, growing up into the full stature of Christ. This is a long-term process. It takes generations, millennia. Indeed, we could say it takes all of history. Because this process of the church growing up corporately into the full stature of Christ, the full measure of Christ's manhood, that process is not complete until the last day. But we need to understand this. It's only going to happen if, as verse 16 says, every part of the body, 
that's officers and members. It only happens if every part of the body, officers and members, does its share. That is what matures and strengthens the body. Officers who are gifts equipping the members to use their gifts as well. Gifts ministering to gifts so that gifts can be maximized. That's the point. That's how we come to maturity. And so a lack of love or a lack of service or divisive behavior, all of those things, they not only stunt your own growth as a Christian, they stunt the growth of Christ's body. Think about what's at stake in your failure to love your Christian neighbor, your fellow church member. You are stunting the growth of the body of Christ. The whole point of all of this is that the, the body of Christ would grow and mature. We grow when we are united in the truth. You know, look at the kind of things Paul says here. How do we grow? We grow when we're united in the truth, when we speak the truth in love to one another. Speaking lies won't do it. And speaking the truth in unloving ways won't do it either. We've got to speak the truth in love if we're going to grow up into the full measure of Christ's manhood. This growth happens when we're grounded in truth. And so we're not tossed to and fro by every false doctrine that comes down the pike. And I tell you, there's a lot of false doctrine, a lot of false teaching coming down the pike these days. Then we won't be led astray by tricky or cunning false teachers. And again, there's a lot of those tricky and cunning false teachers in our day. Understand this, Jesus himself is the church's goal. To become like Jesus, to grow up into our head, to grow up into full Christ-likeness. Jesus is the world's first and only true grown-up. The rest of us, in comparison to Jesus, are so immature. Jesus is the world's first and only true grown-up. The church, as a corporate person, is to mature into full-grown manhood like him. That is to say, Christ is the prototype. He is the model, not just for the individual Christian, but for the church. God's plan for the church is Christ. It's Christ-likeness. It's Christ's maturity. That's what it's about. The officers of this church, your pastors, your elders, your deacons, the officers of this church are God's gift to you, given to you for your good. And our whole goal is that you would grow so that all together we can reach this goal. We all want to grow up together into the full stature of Christ. Don't think of your officers as entertainers to keep you amused. Oh, I know some of them are kind of funny. But don't think of your officers as entertainers to keep you amused. Don't think of them as therapists to coddle you and make you feel good all the time. Think of them more like coaches or personal trainers whose job is to strengthen the body of Christ in every way, to push you towards greater service, greater sacrifice, greater faith, greater obedience. That's the job of the officers in this church, to push you to do things you didn't think you could do, to serve God in new ways, to love in new ways, to obey in new ways, to put this sin to death and to cultivate that virtue. That's what the officers are here to help you do. That's what we're here for. God has given us to you for this purpose. He has formed us together into his people, into a community, so we can grow up together into Christ, who is our head. That is the goal. That is the goal for officers. That is the goal for members. We are God's gifts to one another for the good of the whole. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,
ね